You're editing. Oh, you told me not to. You said I'm deaf. I can't edit anymore because <laughs> I'm deaf. <laughs> Just because you're deaf. I mean, that's about the quality of the podcast. So. Ouch. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome back to Couple Goals. Hello. We're on episode 37. And uh, yeah. I have a follow up to my news story from, I think it was from last week. What was your news story? So I I talked about a funeral home in Detroit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was called the, the dead Cantrell. babies in the, in yeah, the attic. follow up to that. I think in another location they found like a shit ton more. Like that. Wait, so, so... This family had multiple locations. Yeah. And they had more dead babies in, in the and, attic. And freezers and hiding away in other spaces and whatnot. Keeping dead babies in the attic. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. I don't have the story in front of me. I read it earlier. I wasn't sure if I wanted to actually follow up on it. But no. I thought I'd just point out that there's a, something good. like 65 fetuses or something crazy total now. No, they're not fetuses if they're... Well, out, of the, out of the body and up in the attic. Okay, yeah. Once you, once you birth them and you put them upstairs, they're not. They're not fetuses. No, they're they're babies. They're dead babies at that point. You remember that Industrial Act fetus? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Richard fetus, and he would work the word fetus into all his album titles and stuff. No, I, I don't know. No. Did you actually think I would know what you were talking about? Maybe. Sometimes I think. <laughs> So when I, when I know something, I feel like everybody knows it because I don't know anything. That's so. what I feel like. And you're always like, nobody knows what you're talking about. No one else is well, in That's usually because you'll just talk about something like mid-thought. Yeah. You'll just start a sentence with the line. And then she came over here and did this. And I'm like, I don't know who or what you're talking about right now. And then you'll yeah. backtrack to a conversation we had like three days before. Right. <laughs> I mean, keep up. Or we have no. a lot to talk about. Do we? We have so much to talk about. Okay. So let's talk about last night. We went and saw the new Halloween movie. No spoilers. <laughs> I mean, can you can you spoil it? It's, it's a Halloween movie. I, mean, I don't know if you know this. Michael Myers is in it. Jimmy Lee Curtis is in it. No spoilers. I will say it is a it's a sequel to the first movie, from what I understand. So it disregards every other sequel. Right. I had the hardest time grasping that. Why? I I couldn't grasp it because it's 40 years. It's 40 years later, right? Like, that's that's the premise. It's 40 years after the first movie. Which it really is. Yeah. And I had the hardest time grasping it because the first movie opens, right? Like, so I'm assuming that you've seen the first movie from, like, 1978 or whatever. And the first movie opens with little six-year-old Michael Myers killing a sister. And right. then it moves on, and and Laurie Strode is, like, in high school or it's whatever. Like 16 years later, I want to say. I'm not sure exactly. Right. Well, whatever. So it moves on, and Laurie Strode is babysitting, and, I mean, everyone's seen the first Halloween. Yeah. And I had the hardest time grasping that there's that gap there, right? Because it's not a six-year-old killer. In the, in the original. Right. So when they show Michael Myers in the new one, obviously he's old, right? He's like 60. Yeah. Because it's 40 years later and he was like almost 20 in the first one. Right, around 20 years old. He's about 20. So he's like 60 now. And they show him and I'm like, this dude's like 46. Like, this is what they think a 46 year old looks like. Like, I had the hardest time grasping it because he's got like gray hair or whatever. Because I kept referencing the six year old. And they kept talking about how he was six years old and he killed his sister. And then they were like, and it's been 40 years. And I'm like, this dude's 46. I had the hardest time grasping it. it I was like, I, I don't know why I we were driving home before I finally understood the timeline. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe it's because it was so late and I was like half brain dead by then. But yeah, so just so everybody understands when you see Halloween, he's like 60. Yeah. 
And Jamie Lee Curtis obviously is like 60, 57 or whatever. And she's badass, except not. Yeah, she, except they set her up decisions. as a very bad, badass character. And she makes a totally believable badass right up until the, the third act. Yeah. And then she just becomes an idiot and <laughs> right. makes all kinds of bad decisions. <laughs> but again, horror movies are predicated on bad decisions. You wouldn't yeah. have the drama if everybody just made intelligent decisions, right. basically. Right. If she had just made good decisions in the third act, it would have been over at the first scene of the third act. Yeah, a lot sooner. So. But overall, I, I enjoyed it. It's fine. I've, I've always it's liked Jamie movie. Lee Curtis. Uh, they, you know, it mirrored the original a lot intentionally. It was more violent, which was good. But it, had, it still kept that real low-key tone of the first one, though. Yeah. It wasn't over the top like some of the later sequels were. Yeah, it's fine. It's a fine movie. It's a it's an enjoyable Halloween movie. Yeah. I mean, it's not... Nothing's ever topped the first one. No, the first you know, one's still great. I like the first one. I enjoyed the second one. The second one scared me because I saw it as a kid or part part of it as a kid. I liked the second one, too. Yeah, it was super That's violent. That's the one at the I think it scared hospital? me because I was a kid. Yeah, where he's yeah, at, it takes place mostly scary. at the hospital and that, that kid comes in and he's got the razor blade in his mouth and everything. Like, I think that's what freaked me out, seeing that's that as a kid. That's the one with the, like, there's like a, is it a hot tub? Like, what is yeah, that? There's a, yeah, there's like yeah. a hot tub killing. Yeah. The, this one is gory. It is. The kills it's are. It's not as gory as the remakes. No, 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 no. But I mean, when you're comparing yeah, it to the, pretty, to the first two. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. There's a, it's, yep, gross. But I, I really like the Michael Myers in this one. They didn't make him a giant hulking guy. No, he's a 60-year-old man. Yeah, well, you know, but they have a tendency to do that, to make the killer, you know, bigger and bigger and, and, and stuff like that. No, he's and, just a 60-year-old dude. It's he's totally believable that that's the same guy from 40 years ago. Like yeah. Is, you know, the, the body language, which is all you really have, because he doesn't speak at all. He doesn't speak. He doesn't say a single word. So which I, he I think overall they, they did a good job with it, though. Yeah. And the, the okay. best character in the movie is uh, Julian, the little the little kid that's being babysat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because he's the audience. Yeah, He's he represents what the audience is thinking, you know, do this. Why don't you do that? He's the audience. And he's not in it very cute. long at all, but he's a fantastic character in the movie. I really yeah. liked him. Yeah, he's a he's a good kid. He's he is that kid represents what swearing for a little kid should be like in a movie. He swears correctly. He doesn't he, come he off as practiced. fake. Right. He say, it doesn't come off as fake. He, he sounds practiced. He is like that kid is what the swearing for that kid in Deadpool should have been. Yeah. And that Instead kid was a lot of, older. Yeah. And that kid sounded like that was the first time he ever swore was in the Deadpool movie. Yeah. Uh, or maybe people just don't swear right in New Zealand. I don't know. Dude, let's let's digress a little bit since you brought up Deadpool and there's they haven't announced it but they're supposedly reach releasing this PG-13 cut of Deadpool 2 yeah and I'm excited for it because I, I think it could be a lot funnier and I think 100% of people would disagree with me because they don't know Deadpool from the beginning like I do and Deadpool was did not start as an R-rated character by any means back when he originated the comics code authority was still a thing and and they very much had to have their characters in check for the the bigger uh, comic publishers so he didn't start off as an r-rated character and i think that ryan reynolds brand of humor which some of it is very funny mm -hmm. but he is a very much a kitchen sink kind of guy where he throws in everything and i'd say about 50 percent of it lands maybe a little bit more but some of it is just very throwaway and like oh, i didn't need to say that it's too much it's over the top yeah so i'm very curious about this cut now, the violence I'll miss. I do like the, the violence of an R-rated movie, but it's not a huge deal. So I'm, I'm just curious what they'll put together with this PG-13, because I know a lot of people, no, oh, no, you can't have Deadpool without an R rating. It's like, actually, Deadpool existed for many, many years without an R rating. You could definitely have, what's that kid's name? Like, Tiny Fist of Fury? What's his name? <laughs> oh, yeah, Fist, Fire, Fire Fist. Fire Fist. You yeah. can have that kid. Like, that kid's terrible. 
That yes. kid's awful. Get rid of him, like, entirely. Just cut him out. The other thing, and, and since we're talking about Deadpool, I just want to nitpick those movies in that the other thing I, I never liked about either of those movies, again, coming from the comic books, is the insistence Wade Wilson has on being a hero and the way in the first movie when you see him on his first so-called mercenary mission and he's just threatening a pizza delivery kid that's not Deadpool he's a fucking killer he doesn't help out little teenage girls yeah with their high school stalkers like that was so that was so insanely stupid to me it almost put me off the movie about, okay this is what? off topic yeah. sorry can we talk about the fact that we saw a preview for Death Day 2 or whatever that's called? And oh, it yeah. ruined the first Death Day yeah, movie? Yeah, in a trailer, it, they just completely spoiled the ending of the first movie, which I was maybe going to see one day. We, right. we can, we've considered it a few times when There's we were looking a, at movies to watch. We've watched the trailer when we've been Right, and like, that might be a watch. fun horror movie to watch, and they just completely spoiled who the killer they is. They told you who the killer was. I've never, I don't recall ever seeing that in a trailer. I've never seen a trailer where they told you who the killer was. Yeah. That was shocking. That was shocking. I, I just imagine, I don't know, if they ever did a sequel to, like, The Usual Suspects. Oh, my God. You, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or like a trailer for um, what's that movie called? I don't know. Can you give me an idea? Yeah, it's the one where Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Oh, The Sixth Sense. Why didn't you just say that? Yeah. It, OK, well, now I have to cut all this out because that's what I. No, that's a very old movie. The The Happy Death Day is, is fairly. I think it's only a year or two old. You know, that's not... That's insane, though. But anyway... They just like, completely yeah. ruined that movie. You can't do a trailer for Sixth Sense and be like, oh, Bruce Willis is dead. Right. And like, I'm also... Also, Bruce Willis was a ghost the whole time. Right. Like, the fuck? So my boss has given me control of the music at work, which is, as you know, could be a dangerous thing. But I try to be respectful of what people like and dislike, and I understand... I wish you were respectful of that when we were in the car together, but that's fine. Well, here's I am respectful of that because I care about you as a person. So it's important for me to expose you to good music. I don't really you know, I can't do that at work. I can't care about everybody's individual taste. And it's it's worked. You have way better taste than you used to. And we'll never quite get rid of all your you know, I get in the car now and, you know, I just literally turn it to static what is that station you listen to it is terrible <laughs> i don't have xm radio anymore i understand I, I, I but so you it. just go to like pop garbage 101 <laughs> it's 104 it comes in <laughs> like a 99 is, doesn't ooh, come in in the car that that, that hurts me to my core <laughs> although i will say i picked logan up from work and i had that on and he was like is that is that drake i'm like what he's like that was drake that was just on and I was like, I don't know what Drake sounds like. I don't know. But you're listening to the station that plays Drake. No, it's on until I plug my phone in. Oh, okay. like I don't listen so I to just it. Keep it on static, like I it's, do. It's just on until I put no, on just my put it, music. Put it on static. It's because I don't like to connect my phone through Bluetooth. I don't like because it can go in and out. And I don't yeah. like that. So I plug my phone in, and then I can charge it too. And Logan, Logan knew it was Drake, and I have no idea. I don't know. We well, should know it's Drake. It's he's of the right age. That's fine. Ugh. Nothing wrong with recognizing artists. Although, I didn't know I was listening to Post Malone, so I mean. Yeah. Look at you. Yeah. The way I convinced my boss to let me do this is because we've been stuck listening to classic rock radio or modern, air quotes, modern rock radio. There's no rock in modern rock. They don't even, I don't even think they have guitars anymore in the music. And, you know, like 21 pilots. Should have, they should just have turned my camera on today because your brow is so furrowed. You're so concerned. <laughs> Why is it called rock music? It's just dance music now. 21 pilots, Walk the Sun, Imagine Dragons. They just walk. make pop dance tunes. That's all they do. Walk the Moon? Whatever the fuck they're called. Who cares? They're fucking terrible. They call Walk the Sun again. <laughs> That's what I want them to do. They should walk the sun and not the moon. <laughs> So anyway, I was, you know, I said, hey, I, I have Spotify. I have access to all the music. I can make a playlist and we can 
stop hearing the same songs over and over and over every day, which I thought was what the problem was. That was my issue. My main issue is well, the repetition. Because the radio plays the same like songs. I mean, they do. Yes. That's a thing. Yes. And his whole issue was the fact that they were playing Weezer's cover of Africa about every hour for a while, which I think ended pretty quickly. And then I, but as I explained to him, I was like, well, that's how I feel about classic radio, 97.5, 98.5, classic rock radio. They've been playing all those songs for, uh, I don't know, the 35 years I've been listening to radio. <laughs> Right. How are you not sick of those songs? I, that's what I didn't understand. Like, you're sick of this one Weezer cover, but literally every song, every day is. So I, I, I've i been putting together this playlist. In, For 35 years. Yeah. So, and I've already removed anything that I didn't even think was heavy, but apparently it's heavy if it has a double bass drum. That's just extreme and craziness, which blows my mind that in this day and age that songs that and i'm talking not not even just double bass i'm sorry i'm talking like the ramones this is music that is 40 years old that people are like oh no 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 that's get that crazy it reminds me of the dewey cox story the john c Riley movie yeah where it's like the walk yeah, hard yeah where, where he, he's playing that real slow rocket rockabilly whatever style and everybody starts punching each other and yeah. the priest starts freaking <laughs> out and everything that's that's how people react when you play the ramones and or the misfits nowadays it's like this somehow it's still upsetting yeah so i've had to get rid of a lot of that stuff and then i was told that boy i need my top 40 so it turns out most people just want to hear the same thing over and over again which blows my mind I like that. I cannot fathom well, that. I think I think it's a comfort zone issue, right? Like people are people are sheep, so they don't like anything that isn't familiar. And and then well, as I explained, though, you know, everything was new to you at one point. Why can't you absorb? So, you know, I've been playing like J. Roddy Walston in the business. Not a hugely popular band. I introduced you to J. Roddy yes, you did in the business. And you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Were there, can you list your other contributions? Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> Just the one then? Bleachers? No, I don't think. Did you introduce me to bleachers? Yes, I know I did. Okay. How Every, dare you? Everybody calm down. I will not. And I'm not a huge bleachers fan. I like like two songs, literally. Yeah. Let's, let's calm down. I like J. Roddy Walson in the business a lot. So I do appreciate that. That's a very good find on your part. I lost my train of thought now. That's because I'm oh, so, so everything is taste. everything is is new to you at some point, right? So my thought was, you know, I know what you like. You love southern rock, seventies sounding southern rock. Here's Jay Roddy Walson. This is right, but they, you know, they're they shun it. They they, they don't want anything to do I with know, it. That's why when you you told me you were adding ghosts to the playlist, and I yes, was like, it's another band, seventies like, rock. I was like, that's not gonna go. That's gonna go over like a lead balloon. Don't do it. And you were like, but they like seventies rock, and I was like, it's not gonna go it's over well. I know people. Well, and he, how did it go over? It hasn't gone over. Ghost hasn't gone over poorly. Had a couple people ask, like, what the fuck is this when J. Roddy, <laughs> when J. Roddy Walston comes on, which is benign to me. Like, J. Roddy Walston is not something where you're like, oh, what is what is this? I've had people freak out over Radiohead so songs because J. Roddy Walston is so universally accepted that they literally play it on Planet Fitness Radio, like on the, sc on yeah. the TV screen. They're not on iHeartRadio. They're not on their classic rock station for obvious reasons, despite their sound fitting. They're not classic rock, but they're also not on 99.1, which is their quote unquote modern rock where they play it's, bands that don't have guitars. Yeah. But it's somehow rock music, which I don't understand. They, Jerry Wilson has guitars and piano. Yeah. And they're not on 99.1 because they have guitars. Wow. That's, that's some heavy, heavy stuff right there. Having guitars in your bands nowadays. Yeah, you it's too heavy have, for rock and roll. You can't have guitars. You can't be having band. guitars in your rock band. Got to sound like Imagine Dragons where it's just all drums and a terrible vocalist so yeah that's uh it's been quite a week in the isley household well but i'm refining this playlist it's getting better i've had to reintroduce bands that i've that if i never heard them again i'd be fine like acdc and the red hot chili peppers i don't need to hear songs by them for the rest of my life but they need them they need their radio staples it, it just baffles me that 
I guess people don't think about it, but basically what they're doing, they're just buying into what a giant multi-billion dollar corporation has decided they should listen to. And they're like, yes, I agree. You know what I mean? Like yeah. That, that's, that, that blows me away that they think this corporation whose only interest is advertising dollars. Right. It has determined, well, this is the good music. And they're like, yes, it is. Thank you. Well, you know, <laughs> thank you, but I have another. Right. That's weird to me. Dude, I, I get it. I told you, I keep my radio on so that way I have something to hear until I plug in my phone so that I can determine what I want to hear. I don't keep the radio on to listen to the radio. Like, good God, everybody calm down. Well, I just keep it on static till I get my phone plugged in because I don't want to hear any of that. It's all also bad. It didn't use and I didn't appreciate 90s rock radio at the time. I thought it was terrible. And I regret that. I didn't realize it was so great having Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Back Alice in Chains. When I had. Um, and then newer, you know, and you'd have Radiohead, you have more obscure bands like the Eels and the Lemonheads. When I had Sirius XM, I used to listen to Lithium a lot. And that's why I got rid of Sirius XM is because I was like, wait a second. This isn't changing. I could just make this playlist. Right. I don't have to pay for radio right. to hear this. Well, even their modern rock radio, what was that called? Oh, I used to listen to. Oh, I liked it. It was Alt Nation. Alt Nation. That didn't change it. either. You said you would be gone for six months. Oh my and gosh. Have the same playlist. I got. Like, I got when radio. the free when the free time would come around and I would listen to it again for my free month or whatever. It was still the same damn songs from six months before when I would have it. And I was like, "How is this possible? No one has put out new music." Right. Like it is still the same Death Cab for Cutie song. Right. From six months ago. Like that can't be a thing. Yeah, that that's bullshit. Radio is bullshit. But I do appreciate that I can that that I have at least been entrusted with this, even though they don't realize the amount of work that actually goes into trying to curate a playlist that people basically don't notice is what I'm learning. <laughs> they want music that they don't notice, that they don't know is there. They just want noise. It's very within well and, and they want songs that they can sing along to. So they literally just want Stuff songs they've familiar. been hearing for yeah. years and they don't want to be introduced. And I did read something interesting the other day that uh, on average, people stop looking for new music around the age of 30. They're just that's everything they've heard up to that point is enough for them. And that seems to be the, the case. I I would guess even younger, actually. But I still like like finding new music. You sure do. Despite being an old geezer who thinks there's not a lot of good stuff out there. There's there is good stuff out there. And it's actually easier to find than ever, thanks to the Internet. But it's not big, though. There's so many. Everything is so segmented now. So many different genres and, and subgenres that these bands don't get the exposure. I think they deserve like J. Roddy Walston. I mean, they're they're a fairly big band, you know, in a, in a way. I feel like if I can find you, you're a decent sized band. Because although it's easier to get exposure, it's also harder to get exposure because there's so many people fighting for it. Right. So, so you have to get coverage on a website or something. Yeah. So who wants to go first? You can. You actually have your shit queued up. I'm sitting here with my phone black and flipped over. I was talking about the 1984 movie Ghostbusters, which is my all time favorite movie. Yeah. I can, I've seen it countless times and I could watch it every day and it still makes me laugh yeah and you it's, and me i love i love ghostbusters not as much as you but i still love it so I, d I don't remember exactly where i left off and i couldn't be bothered to find out so i'll just pick up where i think i should pick um up. you left off talking about the script and development that's what i thought so I was just kind of good to go into casting. I know I, I think I touched on that a little bit. Not, oh, well, a little bit in that it could be any three guys. It could be any three guys, but they had their core cast of Bill Murray mm -hmm. as Peter Venkman, Dan Aykroyd as Ray Stance, and Egon, or no, Harold Ramis as Egon Spangler. <laughs> so Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis initially wrote these roles uh uh, two roles spe specifically for John Belushi and John Candy. And I, I talked about John Belushi yeah. that went into with, with Bill Murray. But John Candy was supposed to be in it. He was supposed to play Lewis Tully, the role that ultimately went oh. to Rick Moranis. 
So they ran it by him. They they ran the project by him, and he wanted to play this character. He didn't want to play him nerdy. He wanted to play him as a guy with a German accent that had, like, two German shepherds with him all the time. No. So they were like, never mind. So they ended up going <laughs> to Rick Moranis, and Rick Moranis says, it said something along the lines of, John Candy's an idiot. I'm going to do this. Yeah. This is a great, this is a great script. I'm going to do this role. So that's how they got their original, or not their original, but that's how they got uh, Lewis Tully. Uh, another bit of casting trivia, uh, Gozer was going to appear in the form of Evo Shandor, who they mentioned, and which was a going to be a, like a slender man in a suit, kind of reminiscent of David Bowie. And he was going to be played by Paul Rubens. Oh. Which is Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. Ultimately, though, the role went to a Yugoslavian model. Her name was Slavica Jovan, which huh. nobody ever heard from her again, as far as right. I can tell. She was like, I got this role and then I'm, I'm done. I'm good. So according to Ernie Hudson, an earlier version of the script has had his character, Winston Zeddemore, in a larger role with an elaborate backstory as an Air Force demolitions expert. He was excited by the part, and so he agreed to the job for half his usual salary. However, the night before shooting began, he was given a new script with a greatly reduced role. Ivan Reitman told him the studio had wanted to expand Bill Murray's role. So in 2015, in Entertainment Weekly, Ernie Hudson wrote, I love the character. He's got some great lines, but I felt the guy was just kind of there. I love the movie. I love the guys. I'm very thankful to Ivan for casting me. I'm very thankful that fans appreciate the Winston character, but it's always been very frustrating. Kind of a love-hate thing, I guess. So I want to go a little bit more into that. So he made half the money he, has, he normally made? Yeah. But then they also cut his role in half? Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of fit. <laughs> so his character was originally intended to represent the audience, but was rewritten to be an outsider and a late addition to the team. Now, this is... I've read conflicting accounts of this. Ivan Reitman says this isn't true, but this is something I've believed for years because that's what I've always heard. Dan Aykroyd worked with Eddie Murphy on Trading Places, and so he wanted Eddie Murphy to play the role of Winston Zeddemore. And I've re I always read that the studio, when they found out they couldn't get Eddie Murphy, they reduced that role. Because ah, that makes sense, yeah. Now, Ivan Reitman says that the character was never written with Eddie Murphy in mind. So I don't know if that's revisionist history or what, but those, those are the two stories, basically. Uh, Eddie Murphy was busy shooting Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, anyway, well. Anyway, so. That's. Which came out later that year. That's a. 1984. Fantastic movie. I prefer Beverly Hills Cop 2, actually. Yeah. Which is weird. It's one, that's one of the movies that I prefer the sequel. All right. So filming of the exterior scenes began in Manhattan in late October 1983. I don't know if, know if you remember, but from the first half. The studio agreed to like a 25 to 30 million dollar budget, which was huge for what was largely a comedy, mm -hmm. like three times the budget of a movie like Stripes. But with the, the caveat that the movie had to release in June of 1984. So they had 13 months to get to finish the script, get everything, their effects house together, get all everything. that stuff. Yeah. So this is uh, October is when they finally started uh, exterior shooting, though so they filmed at Columbia University which they allowed uh, Havemeyer Hall to stand in for the fictional Weaver Hall in the movie on the condition that the university need not be identified by name. Uh, the Irving Trust Bank on Fifth Avenue served as the bank where Aykroyd's character takes out a third mortgage. <laughs> and, of course, the firehouse was... Everybody's got three mortgages nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> like, Ray, in the first five years alone, you'll be paying $95,000 in interest or something. <laughs> Some insane amount. So the firehouse that they're in was actually a, a actual firehouse that's still in use that we, we saw when we went to New York last year because yeah. I, I made us go on a tour of all the we did. shooting we, locations We literally of went on a Ghostbusters tour. It was really cool. Yeah, we went on a Ghostbusters tour in New York. But that was That's a hook and ladder company number eight in the Tribeca neighborhood. Then uh, the building at 55 Central Park West, which is right across from Central Park. It's uh, 55 Central Park West. Yeah, that's like, where that's it is. The that's the address. That's, that's where I you go. I got some cool pictures of that. Got the church next door. 
some other Manhattan locations used for the exteriors were the New York Public Library, which, of course, we went there. It's the New York Public Library. That's where you, <laughs> that's where you go there. The Waldorf, Waldorf Astoria Hotel, the Tavern on the Green, and the restaurant in Central Park where Tully becomes one of the terror dogs. Yeah. So I guess locals complained about the imposition on their neighborhoods. So they had one night to dress the street. When people went home early in the evening, everything was normal. And when the little ladies came out to walk their dogs in the morning, the whole street had erupted. <laughs> Apparently, people complained to the New York Police Department. During filming of the scene set at Dana Bear and Lewis Tully's apartment building at 55 Central Park West, Dan Aykroyd ran into science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. That's awesome. Whom Aykroyd idolized. Asimov demanded to know if Aykroyd was responsible for the traffic jam caused by the street closures between 61st <laughs> and 67th. When he admitted that he was, he replied, it's disgusting. <laughs> so, yeah, supposedly... Dan Aykroyd was able to calm him down because he's such a huge fan. But that's, that's kind of crazy to run into one of your heroes and he's just pissed at you <laughs> as soon as he beats you. He's just like, what the fuck are you guys doing? So they well, shot like, some... I'm such a huge fan and he's like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so some interior scenes were shot at Burbank Studios, now the Warner Brothers Studios, which we also toured. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. But we didn't really get to go into those buildings for the most part no we didn't really do interior which doesn't really matter because this it they all change yeah like, they're they not they're just that. empty buildings or they have whatever we did currently. interior actually but they were all set up for fucking big bang theory right. and young that's Sheldon. what i mean they're, they're set up for stuff nowadays they're not going to have like the whole rooftop scene from ghostbusters no, in there we anymore for, unfortunately it was literally stuck for big bang theory and young sheldon like who the fuck cares about those shows the same Gross. people probably who want to hear the same goddamn songs on the radio all the time, I'm guessing. Right. Like, this is not the podcast for you if that's what you <laughs> want to, if that's what you're trying to do. Like, that's not. So you know how at the end of the movie when they, they destroy the marsh, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? Yeah. And they're all covered in marshmallows? Hmm. That was all shaving cream. Oh. Yeah. That's way easier to get off the marshmallow. So they had something like... 75 pounds of shaving cream that they tested on a stuntman because William Atherton, who played Walter Peck, the EPA representative. Let's talk about that for a minute. That's just pretty funny. The The only, like, villain in the movie, aside from the ghosts themselves... Was an EPA. Was the guy representing the EPA. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind right. of funny. Right. But, yeah, so they did a test shot with 75 pounds of shaving cream, and it knocked a stuntman flat. So they only used about 35 pounds for the final shot where it all just falls on him. You remember when he's yeah. like looking up and that big whole thing, that's all just shaving cream. Yeah, dude, 75 pounds of anything is a lot to fall on one person. Yeah. You can't. Even shaving cream. Yeah. It's because it's poundage. It's a lot. So they they did some test screenings of Ghostbusters and initially it, with executives and they did not like it at all. Fuck executives. Yeah, and... They there's one guy who who tapped like uh, the the executive in charge. I can't remember the guy's name. Frank something. Uh, he tapped him on the shoulder. He's like, yeah, we all make mistakes after they watched it. Yeah. It's like they were not impressed with this movie at all when they saw it. However, when they did audience, you know, general audience test screenings, they loved it. And they didn't even have the effect shots finished when they did their test screenings. They had like placeholder shots and stuff yeah. and the audiences were going nuts. So. So it, it did end up releasing on June 8th in 1984 in 1,339 theaters. Now, you remember yesterday before we went and saw Halloween, you were concerned it was going to sell out, right? And then it nearly sold out. It did, but well after it had started, which is really weird. Like, I don't know who's showing up for a movie literally 20 minutes into the start time. This was this wasn't even just during the trailers. Yeah. It, it did come close to selling out. But I was saying movies don't sell out anymore. And right. And what I meant by that was you can get advanced tickets. Force Awakens is has it was the biggest movie in years. I think it's number eleven all time. And I bought tickets for it the day it came out. Right. And I was able to get seats. Now at later that night, you know, as people show up, it'll probably sell out. But this was the reason I said that about movies not selling out is because that that was a wide release, thirteen hundred theaters. Movies open now in four thousand theaters. Yeah. There's just and on top of more theaters, there's more screening rooms. Right. You know, back Each then you had a lot of duplexes. Has... You had like four screen. Right. I remember when an eight like... screen movie theater was huge, you know, yeah. and now they have 16 and 20 and 24. Right. 
So that's why I don't worry about movies selling out anymore. They, they've they've compensated for that, even though there were only like two empty seats in that whole damn theater and they were next to you. But yeah, yeah. But we what I meant was they don't sell out in advance. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Because, you know, I go opening night all the time. I always manage to get tickets. It's and you've seen how it's been. Typically, it was so crowded last night, but that wasn't opening night, though. I guess that's maybe it's different on Saturday night. Maybe most people don't go at seven o'clock on a Thursday like I do. Yeah, that, that is weird. <laughs> not, that's, that's weird. It's weird to go on a Thursday. So it grossed 13.6 million on its opening weekend and 23 million in its first week, which sounds small nowadays, but that was huge. But that's right. But it, it, with the inflation, costs, the amount of theaters less, and everything yeah. that that was it. So it set a lot of studio records. It was number one at the box office for five consecutive yeah, five consecutive weeks, grossing ninety nine point eight million. After seven weeks, it was finally knocked down to the number two position by Purple Rain, at which point it had grossed one hundred forty two point six million, second only to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah. However, it regained the top spot the next week, and again six weeks later. So by the end of the year, it grossed over two hundred twenty one million dollars, making it the highest grossing film of the year and the highest grossing comedy of all time. However, it was surpassed in 1985 by Beverly Hills Cop as the highest grossing film Beverly at the Hills time. It's pretty good. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this. Beverly Hills Cop is an R-rated movie. It was the number one movie that year. An R-rated movie was the highest grossing. Like, times are, like, we're getting more and more conservative. Like, people, you know, like with Venom. I know. It's weird to me that. They're like, I don't know if we should do PG-13 or R. Uh, I know. What do we do? And now if you do an R-rated movie, it's considered a gamble. As far as your grosses at the end of the day. People are being too sensitive. Yes. For no reason. And I, I don't get it. For no reason. But yet you we say that they're being too sensitive. However, we have a rapist on the Supreme Court. Right. So voted in by people who don't Christians care. by like, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Like people who are so, I mean, pro-life get the rapist in there. Yeah. I guess they like that behavior. Yeah. Because he's rapist. trying to procreate really hard. Right. <laughs> he's trying so hard. He's like, I'm going to like, you don't you don't want to have babies. I'm going to put babies in you. Right. Against your will. Oh, fuck. <laughs> We shouldn't be political. It just drags everything down. We're trying yeah. to be uplifting. We're happy. And fun. It's a good. It's a happy podcast. Just because we're in the darkest timeline doesn't mean we can't have some good times. Yes, it does. <laughs> but yeah, I, Beverly Hills Cop is a good movie. I mean, Beverly Hills Cop 2, also great. Fantastic. Yeah, I didn't see either one of those movies till I was with you. Oh, that's weird. That's super weird. It's really not when you consider when the time frame oh, when they yeah. came out. Yeah. I missed a lot of 80s movies because of that. Fantastic. Movie. So overall, if you do an all time adjusted gross, it puts Ghostbusters as the number 36 movie of all time, which is not bad. No, it's really not. That, is that not movie bad. is. If it, it's fantastic. It's a great movie, but something you and I mentioned when we've been watching it, it's. Everyone plays their role so convincingly well. Yeah. Like everyone. And they're they're like so even, comfortable in their characters. Right. Like in the opening scene, like the the little library branch manager is like, what's that got to do with it? When he asks if she's on her period. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone is just so, so into their role. It's it's a great movie. It's just good. It's funny. It's great. But yeah, it topped uh, Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom the, in the year it came out. We have talked about Gremlins in passing three weeks straight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cover Gremlins and, and Joe Dante at some point. What's Joe Dante? Is that a person? Yeah, he directed Gremlins, Poltergeist. Huh? No, no, Toby Hooper did Poltergeist. My bad. Yeah, get your act together, Sean. What else did Joe Dante direct? No, I got to go look. Act like you've been here before. Getting, all, getting my guys all confused. Oh, he directed The Burbs. Oh. And The Howling. Who? What? The Howling. The, it was a werewolf movie in the 80s. Sounds like it was an air, a werewolf. But yeah, The Burbs is, is the other movie I was thinking of. Oh, man. I, I do love The Burbs. So my memories back then, 
And and by this time, I, I don't think I had access to TV. I, I do remember being at like my aunt and uncle's house and hearing the Ghostbusters song on the radio and loving it. That was a, you know, a huge hit. We covered that a little bit last week. Giant hit movie tie in song. So I love that. And I would see the commercials, but I couldn't go see the movie. So I just I watched the commercials. And when it came out on video, my neighbors rented it for me. I had, I had some good people in my life. You, had, you really, had good neighbors. Yeah. Although had, they were kind of weird, like hanging out with little kids. No, no, no. They had a younger son. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, No, they were they were a couple and they had a younger son. They weren't weird. They didn't want me over there. They they were nice to me. They tolerated they, Yeah, they felt bad them. for me. You know, it wasn't like they were like, hey, Sean, come on over. It was more like, fine, <laughs> fine, kid. I understand your life sucks. I guess we can tolerate you for a little bit. But that, that was the first time. I just I, I discovered I had a favorite actor, which is Bill Murray. Bill Murray became my favorite actor of all time at a very young age. Yeah. And I don't really have a lot of favorite actors. It's like Bill Murray and Keanu Reeves. Right. <laughs> Speaking of Bill Murray. Yes. When we were watching Ghostbusters. Yes. You Googled him and we found out he was 33 in Ghostbusters. Yeah. He is the oldest looking 33 year old I have ever seen. I still think. People back then just looked older sooner in the 80s. Like I remember they look like they worked in coal mines. Like, <laughs> what the hell? But even high school kids. But if you go back and look at their their yearbook photos. Yeah, they look like they're like 23 years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so weird. And now I see high school kids and they look 14 and 15 and they're 19. You know, it, yeah. it's it. I think people just age differently back then. I really do. I I don't know what the deal is. Maybe it's just how they were raised. Because back then, like parents were like seen and not heard. And well, like go back to Halloween. Remember how old Jamie Lee Curtis looked in Jamie the original Lee Halloween? Has an old face though. She was like twenty. She wasn't old. She has an old face. She like, looked a, to be thirty-two years old in that movie. In Trading Places, she was young. Yeah, and she looked. 42 yeah and she had like the body of like a 24 year old and the face of a 42 year old <laughs> like she people just aged well, differently back then she's just got an old face i mean she's like fit as a fiddle at 60 and oh, yeah. and she still got the face of like her face finally fits her her body now and going back to those she she was a believable badass and i, I wish they hadn't made her character like goofy at the end. I don't know where she just forget. You know what I mean? All that preparation and then, but you don't have monitors in your basement. You got monitors upstairs. Yeah. But you don't have, it, it was just, it like, was a lot of you? really oh, yeah. strange decisions at the end there. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. Okay. Anyway, back to why you love Ghostbusters. Yeah. Well, I just think it was, it was a collision of comedy like the, it, it, it probably shaped my idea of what comedy was. Right. Like that, it, that just hit me as the funniest thing it, I had ever seen. It was funny. And it's weird because like. I come from a family that thinks they're very funny, but they're actually very mean. Yeah. And they're not funny. Right. right. Like they're they're just a bunch of assholes. So. But they thought that was really funny. Like I grew up watching that movie. I watched that movie like when it came out on video and we had a Betamax player, like I, wa I watched that movie as yeah. a child. So I grew up on that movie. I grew up on Beverly Hills Cop. I grew up on Trading Places. Like I grew up on really good comedies. Right. And I, I grew up with a great sense of humor because of it. Right. And it's weird because like my family's not funny. <laughs> so like, I don't know how they knew what good comedies were. But it, I, I think it reached it. It was just broad enough. But it, there's tons of subtle humor in that movie, though, too. Yeah. That you might not necessarily catch on on a single viewing, like, you know, a lot, a lot of good comedies. But yeah, for me, like I guess I think it was a combination of of comedy and the imagination. You know, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is such an outrageous character that honestly, if the tone of that movie had been any different, it would have stood out like a sore thumb. But it worked <laughs> right. in that movie. Somehow a giant like I can't think of a movie that's had something like that that hasn't registered as being completely anachronistic. And it, I don't know what that means. But like when you see something and it doesn't belong like in that era, like seeing if you saw 
like a night of the round table on a cell phone. Yeah, that, that's that's anachronistic. You know, what I mean? it, it but it it belong it belonged in that. And where movie. did you learn that word? Just reading books. I've never seen you read a book. <laughs> well, they put me to sleep now. When I was a kid, though, I didn't. And, and you had no option. So I've been with you like eighteen years, and you've waited till today to use that word. <laughs> when would I else would I have used it? I don't know. Any time <laughs> in the last eighteen years. Should I just go around pointing out anachronistic things? <laughs> I just think it's weird. You've never seen anything anachronistic until like right I now. Am, I am positive I've used that word before. I don't think so. And you probably just ignored it. Or I wasn't talking to you. But yeah, when I was a kid, I read a lot. I, read, I went to the library every week. Well, yeah, I would walk to the you library. You didn't have anything else to fucking Right, that's do. what I mean. I read, Now I'm like, well, I read all the books. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> now I just read comic books. I don't read it all anymore. For the oh, most part. Oh, my God. You fucking pulled out a word after 18 <laughs> years that I've that I never used. I'm pretty sure I've used that before. So you finished. IMDb I got to go look it up now. Make sure I'm using it correctly. Belonging to a period other than that being portrayed. Great. Fantastic. No. Good. <laughs> I'm kind of using it right. Except, like, not really, because what period does the tape off mark Right, it's in? not really a period. I, I guess I was thinking more, it, it's, it almost belongs to a different movie. Like, more of, like, a little kid's movie or something, you know? Yeah. But it, somehow it works in, in the Ghostbusters universe. Also, try to use words that people know. <laughs> people know that word. Like, that's, that, that's what I was thinking. Word of the day. <laughs> anachronistic. With or anachronism. Either, either one. <laughs> word of the week with couple goals threw me completely off by my <laughs> thing with that with the oh the special effects let's talk about just special effects in general they they've they fit real they, they were well done for their era and i think they hold up fairly well they they hold up okay yeah i mean they hold up better than fucking toby mcguire spider-man like yeah with green goblin <laughs> like but that also might be due to the tone of the movie too yeah you know you only largely you, you don't expect everything to be super serious yeah you want to talk about the sequel at all i like the sequel why don't you save that for next week i don't want to do ghostbusters anymore i should move on to a different topic okay well People can i do mine because we're like in what do you have for us today i was like uh don't wants to keep going so if i could do my stuff please love when you do your squish car imitation and nobody knows why <laughs> you are pluralizing all your words except me uh, if you guys haven't watched metalocalypse it feels like your fault so i am continuing on my unsolved mysteries magic mysteries tour with couple goals and i'm doing db cooper do you know who that is? <laughs> I kind of. <laughs> You're looking around well, like I, the answer like, might I know, be somewhere. I've heard that name. All right. But I think I'm just thinking of like D.B. Sweeney. Thinking of B.S.B. D.B. Sweeney. Who's that? Wasn't he an actor? He was in some movie with Moira Kelly called The Cutting Edge. Oh, my God. That's I think that's who I'm thinking of. I don't know who D.B. Cooper is. Now I gotta look him up. <laughs> You're not gonna look up DB Cooper right now. I'll look up DB Sweeney. <laughs> I wanna see if I'm making that up. Well, I remember Cutting Edge. That's an well, ice yeah, skating movie from the I just, 80s. I don't know if I'm, that's, I just made that up. Oh, yeah, that's him. That's that guy. All right. Next week, we'll be doing yeah. Cutting Edge. We'll be doing ice skating movies. Yep, there it is, Cutting Edge. Yeah, no, I, I remember. I saw that's, it. Okay, I don't know why that stayed with me. So, on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, Dan Cooper was a passenger on Northwest Airlines Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle. It was a 30-minute flight. I think I do know this. Okay. And he was described by passengers and flight attendants as a man in his mid-40s wearing a dark suit, black tie, with a mother-of-pearl tie clip, and a neatly pressed white-collared shirt. He took a seat, he lit a cigarette, and he politely ordered a bourbon and soda, for which he paid cash. That's which, a lot of details. The fact that he paid for it is very weird to me. Did you buy drinks? On it? Oh, yeah, you buy drinks on a plane. That's just how it is, right? Yeah. Even in the 70s, I would imagine that makes sense. Well, it's just weird when you're hijacking a plane, I think. Oh, okay, so maybe I don't know the story. Shortly after takeoff, he handed a note to Florence Schaffner, 
a name I am pronouncing correctly. Yeah. Unlike Schlittenbauer. We're going to call her Florence Schittner the rest of the show. (laughs) (sighs) Episode 35, man. That was a rough one. Florence Schaffner. Schaffner. A 30. I'm sorry. A 23 year old flight attendant who ignored it. She just assumed it was his phone number. Yeah. Like, you know, because she's 23 and she's like, fuck off, guy. And he said, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Hmm. The note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt tip pen. Its exact wording is unknown because he later reclaimed it. But Schaffner recalled the note said that Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase. After Schaffner read the note, Cooper told her to sit beside him. She did as he requested and quietly asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders, four on top of four. It was attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. After closing the briefcase, he stated his demands. 200,000 in negotiable American currency, which in today's money would be over a million dollars, like with inflation. Um, Four parachutes, two primary with two reserves, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit, and when she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. The pilot contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which in turn informed local and federal authorities. The 36 other passengers were given false information at that their arrival in Seattle was delayed because of a minor, minor mechanical difficulty. Northwest Orient's president authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to Hmm. allow Seattle's police and FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. Can you imagine being on a 30-minute flight and then circling (laughs) for two additional hours? I'd be furious. You know, it'd be like minor mechanical, but it's like two hours. (laughs) Yeah. So Schaffner recalled that Cooper apparently appeared, I'm sorry, appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he did remark, looks like it's Tacoma down there (laughs) as the aircraft flew above Tacoma. (laughs) Wow. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20 minute drive from Seattle Tacoma Airport. Schaffner described him as as calm, polite and well-spoken. Not at all consistent with the stereotypes enraged hurt criminals that were popular with air piracy at the time. You know, air piracy. Yeah. That was a problem that they were the popular air pirates were. That was happening, apparently, at the time in the 70s. Oh. Tina Mukla was another flight, flight attendant on the, on the um, plane that yeah. day, and she agreed. She said he wasn't nervous. And he seemed rather nice. He was never cruel. He was not nasty. He was thoughtful and calm. He ordered a second bourbon and water. He paid his drink tab. <laughs> and he attempted to tip Schaffner with the change. Nice. He offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop at Seattle. <laughs> he was like, pleasant. Right. He's like, I'm a nice hijacker. That's how it should be, though. You, should, like, you shouldn't be angry. He's when, like, I'm not know. a regular hijacker. I'm a cool hijacker. <laughs> <laughs> FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle area banks, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills. Most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and most from the 1963A or 1969 series and made from a microfilm photograph. So they basically knew Right. Like, so they they took pictures of everything. So that way they would be able to tell if it ever came back into circulation. Right. Cooper rejected the military issued parachutes that they were offered that the the, um, whatever those people are called, FBI, offered him and asked for civilian 
parachutes with manual rip cords, and the Seattle police were able to obtain them from a local skydiving school. Hmm. So he was clearly a he was not military is what we're learning there. Right. Yeah. He's a he's like a what are those called civilian? Yeah. But what about what am I looking for? Uh, rich person <laughs> who knows how to skydive on his own. At 524 p.m., Cooper was informed that his demands had been met. And at 539 p.m., the aircraft landed at Seattle Tacoma Airport. It was more than an hour after sunset, and Cooper instructed the pilot to taxi the jet to an isolated, bright-lit section of the tarmac and close each window shade in the cabin to deter police snipers. Northwest Orient's Seattle operations manager approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might think he was like a, a cop. Yeah. And he delivered the cash filled knapsack and parachutes to the um, whatever that shit, what the uh, what's the person called the flight attendant. And once the delivery was completed, he Cooper ordered all the passengers and all the other flight attendants. He kept one um, to leave the plane. During refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew. A southeast course headed to Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling. So it was 100 knots, which is 100, 100 knots is 115 miles per hour. Oh, okay. So just so we have an, at the maximum altitude of one of 10,000 feet. So it's not really that high. No. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed at takeoff and landing. And that wind flaps be lowered to 15 degrees and that the cabin remain unpressurized. Co-pilot said that the aircraft's range was limited to 10 or to 1000 miles under the specified configuration, meaning that it had he had to put up the he had to put up the back like the door yeah and during takeoff and landing because it wasn't safe and cooper countered that it is indeed safe but he didn't want to argue so he would just lower the door once they were in the air hmm. like cooper is like not an aggressive guy right so at approximately 7 40 the boeing the boeing 727 took off with only the five people on board it was cooper the pilot the one flight attendant he kept which was not chaffner it was someone else um, the co-pilot and a flight engineer. Two F-106 fi fighter aircraft scrambled from McCord Air Force Base and followed behind the airliner, one above it and one below, out of Cooper's view. A Lockheed 1033 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission and shadowed the 727, but it ran low on fuel and had to turn back. Overall, there were five planes trailing this hijacked plane. Wow. Yeah. Not a single one of them saw him jump <laughs> from the plane. And none of them could pinpoint where he landed. After takeoff, Cooper told the flight attendant to join the rest of the crew, crew in the cockpit. 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 That sounds so dirty, right? <laughs> Cockpit and remain there with the door closed. She complied. But then she observed like as she was going in, she observed Cooper tying something around his waist at 8 p.m. A warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the air stair apparatus had been activated. So even though like they did make him put it up, she he put it back down at eight and the crew went over that loudspeaker, the intercom system yeah. and offered assistance and he refused. The crew soon noticed a subjective change in the air pressure, indicating the door was open. And at 813, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level. And then there was no change until 1015 when uh, 
they landed. They landed. The air stair was still deployed. FBI agent, state trooper, and sheriff's deputy all surrounded the jet. They came on board armed and determined that he was no longer on board. FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints. Hmm. The agents found Cooper's black clip-on tie. <laughs> clip-on. <laughs> Like, dude, it's like, can't be bothered with this. I have to right. I have to hijack a plane. Um, his tie clip. are just smart. I don't care what anybody says. They're, they're, <laughs> they're just smart. He's I like, don't, I, I can't. I can't deal with all that. There's no shame in a clip-on. I, I wish I had clip-ons because they're just easier. There's no reason not to have a clip-on. <laughs> well, I think it's funny, though, that he had a clip-on tie, but he also had a tie clip. Like, so he went through the extra effort to, like, look snazzy with a tie clip. Yeah. But he was also like, but I don't have time to tie a tie, so I'll just get a clip on. It just sounds very practical. He just needs to look good, which is what the tie is for. Shouldn't matter if there's a hidden part underneath your collar or not. So, yeah. So he um, had the clip on tie, the tie clip, two out of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two shroud lines had been cut from its canopy. I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad. <laughs> Um, authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, all of which had personally interacted with Cooper, and a bunch of composite sketches had been developed. I'm sure you've seen them. Yeah. The guy with the sunglasses. A month after the hijacking, FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted significant cash transactions and the law enforcement agencies around the world. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money up to a maximum of $25,000. In early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. In 72, two men using counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers. They used them to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. What the hell? Yeah. The Cooper hijacking marked the beginning of the end for unfettered and unscrutinized commercial airline travel. Despite the initiation of the, the Sky Marshal program the previous year, 31 hijackings were committed in U.S. airspace in 1972. 19 of them were for the specific purpose of ex extorting money, and the rest of them were attempts to reach Cuba. <laughs> In the 15 extortion cases, the hijackers also demanded parachutes. In this is just interesting. In late April of 2013, Earl Cossey, the owner of the sky driving school that furnished the four parachutes that were given to Cooper, he was found dead in his home in Woodenville, a suburb of Seattle. His death was ruled homicide due to the blunt force trauma to the head. The perpetrator remains unknown. Conspiracy theorists immediately begun pointing out possible links to the Cooper case, but authorities responded saying that they have no reason to believe such links exist. Woodenville's officials announced that they believe burglary was most likely the motive. Hmm. On July 8th, 2016, FBI announced that it was suspending active investigations of the Cooper case. 2016. Wow. Citing its need to focus on it, its investigation, investigative resources and manpowers on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Local field offices will continue to accept any le legitimate physical evidence related specifically to the parachutes or a ransom money that may emerge in the future. A 60 volume case file compiled over the 45 year course of the investigation will be preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. On the FBI website, there is a currently a 28 part packet full of evidence gathered over the years. All the evidence is open to the public to read. Wow, that's that's unsolved, huh? That's that's a cool dude right there. He died, clearly. That's impressive, though. You're not going to convince me that motherfucker didn't die when he jumped out of that plane. Because <laughs> that money never turned up. That dude. But that just, maybe he just didn't spend it where they were looking for it. 
I think he I think he jumped to his death. Yeah. Yeah. I think he jumped still, and he probably landed in water and drowned. Still pretty badass. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed. But yeah, you couldn't get away with that now. No. 70s were a different time, man. Yeah. Still a pretty fucking cool story. Right. It's it's pretty badass. He did all that. He didn't injure anyone. He was pleasant. Right. And like nice. Didn't even hurt anyone's feelings. No, he tried to tip them. Right. He was like, but you know what? You, he committed the ultimate sin, according to you, which is he wasted people's motherfucking time by making them wait for two hours <laughs> while they circled. So. Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's bad. But I think if I was in that situation, I don't know how, like, I guess, you know, you would just believe the mechanical issue thing. It'd be scary, though. Anytime you're trapped on a plane for longer than you're supposed to be and it's in the in the air. They would have landed, though, if they had had if they had had an issue with not having yeah. enough. As a passenger, you don't know what's going on for real. Yeah. Ever, at any given ever. point. As a person living in this world, you don't know what's going on ever <laughs> for real at any given point. So, yeah, that's my D.B. Cooper story. I I'm pretty positive that dude washed away yeah forever as did the money because that money is just made out of like our money in general is just made out of fabric it's made out yeah. of fiber yeah so it'll it'll wash away in the water right it'll disintegrate which is why it hasn't been found yeah so yeah that's that pretty cool right yeah so i don't have anything else i don't I don't think I have anything either. Okay. <laughs> so that's that then. That was this week's podcast episode. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Give us a like, share us around, and thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>